Good, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to the third installment of Cato's Healthcare University on Capitol Hill. I'm Kurt Couchman. I'm manager of government affairs at the Cato Institute. Um, before we get started with uh, today's program, very briefly, I want to bring your attention to the handbook, uh, Cato Handbook for Policymakers. It's our comprehensive guide to what we think policymakers should do about uh, the whole spectrum of issues that come before Congress and uh, also state legislatures. Um, also, if you guys haven't already seen this book, uh, Mr. Cannon alluded to it on uh, Tuesday's session. It's Medicare Meets Mephistopheles. It's a satire, uh, probably one of the funniest books you'll ever read on healthcare. I know it's a low bar, but uh, <laughs> but there it is. It's uh, the premise of the book is that there's this underling demon six 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 who is uh, writing a report for Satan and um, talking about how great Medicare is uh, at advancing um, the devil's priorities here on Earth. So very funny. We do have some copies uh, out on the the table outside. Um, on a more serious note, but uh, no less readable, we have healthy competition. Um, the second edition uh, was just updated and released uh, last year, or late 2007, and uh, it is the best book on healthcare that I've, re that I've read as an overview. It uh, talks about a lot of the things that are going to be covered or have been covered uh, during this week's uh, briefing series, and uh, there's also a lot more in here. Um, so moving on to today, uh, Tuesday and uh, yesterday were basically the events... Uh, saying, don't do these things, don't do a public plan, don't do mandates. Today we're continuing with that, don't do price controls. Um, tomorrow we're going to get into the finale, which is uh, the market solutions. Um, and if you'll note, the binder that you guys should have already picked up, the Healthcare University binder, um, the market solutions portion of that is actually the thickest portion because there's a lot of great ideas and uh, we hope some of you will take them to your bosses and you guys will be able to run with them. So uh, let me introduce our speaker for the third day. Uh, very briefly, for the, those of you who are new to uh, this event, um, Michael Cannon is the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He is the author of a good portion of our readings and uh, he's a former domestic policy analyst at the Senate Republican Policy Committee, where he covered health, education, labor, welfare, and Second Amendment issues. Um, he has degrees from the University of Virginia and George Mason University. And in addition to being the co-author of Healthy Competition, the book, he is also the editor of uh, Healthy Competition, the newsletter, which is a weekly email that you can sign up for on our website. It keeps you up to date with uh, the most recent Cato publications and other activity regarding health policy. So with that, I'll turn it over to Michael Cannon. Thank you, Kurt. And hello again. So as Kurt mentioned, today's topic is going to be price controls. Um, this is something that we don't, people don't talk about very much specifically uh, uh, or directly when we're talking about health care and health care reform. It's, I think, thought bad form and polite company to mention that much of our health care sector is already dominated, governed by price controls. Government imposes price controls on everything from medical services to hospitalizations to prescription drugs to health insurance. And price controls are an important contributor 
to the quality problems and the high uh, health care spending that, that, that we face in the U.S. They keep prices too high in many cases, leading to oversupply and excessive spending. In other cases, they, they keep prices too low, leading to shortages, reduced access, and less innovation. A very simple example, uh, of probably the one you hear about the most here on Capitol Hill, is that we, and we've talked about this before, we've got an oversupply of specialists, we've got an undersupply of primary care physicians, and price controls uh, under the Medicare program and, and, uh, and the Medicaid program have a lot to do with that. In all cases, uh, price controls block the market from uh, block the market signals that would push producers and consumers to solve every one of these problems. Nevertheless, the major health care reform proposals that have been put forward by President Obama, by Senator Baucus, by uh, even Speaker Pelosi, the House Progressive Caucus, and even Senators Wyden and Bennett with the bipartisan health care reform bill that they have put together in the Senate would all expand the use of price controls in the health care sector. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, – I'd like my slide to advance – what I'd like to do is I'd like to start out by talking, giving just a little bit of a, an economic and historical perspective on price controls, why economists are so hostile to price controls and the sort of harms that they create. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, price controls in our healthcare sector right now and, and uh, where they crop up and some of the effects that they have and, and then wrap up with um, some remarks on the dangers of uh, expanding price controls. So economists don't like price controls, and here's why. Under normal market conditions, the price mechanism works to equilibrate supply and demand, as your economics professors taught you, so that the quantity demanded by consumers is equal to the quantity supplied by producers. And all this happens because without the government having to manage the process. It all happens because producers and consumers look at the market prices uh, and they move the market in the direction of, or, or they, they move the, the price uh, in the direction of what will produce the optimal quantity of uh, the item of interest. Now, if that market price is higher than some people might like, that sends in important signals. To consumers, it says that they should husband that resource carefully, and to producers, it says that they can profit if they make that product less costly and more widely available. Now, when the government tries to control prices, it interferes with those signals and things start to go a little haywire. When the government imposes a maximum price or a price ceiling, the quantity that producers are willing to supply falls, while the quantity that consumers demand rises. And when the quantity demanded exceeds the quantity supplied, you get a shortage. In the 1970s, gasoline price controls led to gas lines across the United States. During the French Revolution, grain price controls led to shortages and bread riots. As we all know, the Soviet Union had their own issues with bread lines. And on the other side of the White House, we've got a sandwich shop named for those bread lines. In the 1630s, the Puritans adopted price controls but quickly abandoned them when they realized that competition did a better job of regulating prices. That's a lesson that New York City has yet to learn when it comes to rental housing. Under a binding price ceiling, the market diverts resources from the price-controlled item toward less productive uses. There's less investment in innovation. That's one reason why uh, there, uh, so many of those rental units in New York are, are not maintained well. People resort to non-price rationing mechanisms like waiting lists and, uh, or side payments that you, you might, might have to make to a landlord in New York City. 
And economists, economists have estimated that once you account for the cost of the time that people had to wait in line, the gas price controls uh, imposed in the U.S. in the 70s actually increased the cost of gasoline to consumers. Uh, economists have also estimated that po uh, the, TV, the price controls that were imposed on TVs in Poland led to costs that were greater than the size of the entire TV industry in that country. Now, given the enormous cost of price controls, it's no wonder that people uh, try to subvert them through black markets and other strategies like I've mentioned. And yet, under these shortage conditions, there's no guarantee that the people you want to help, presumably the most income-constrained consumers, are going to be the ones who actually get the items of interest. Now, when government imposes a minimum price or a, pr or a price floor, what happens then? The quantity that consumers demand falls, while the quantity that producers are willing to supply rises because the price is higher now. One way of creating a price floor is with price supports, which, uh, uh, which are uh, subsidies aimed at keeping prices high, such as agricultural price supports. When the government increases prices above the equilibrium price, producers want to sell more than consumers want to buy. And the when the quantity supplied exceeds the quantity demanded, you get a surplus or a glut. In the U.S., we have price supports for things like dairy products, sugar, corn, tobacco, peanuts. According to economist Jonathan Gruber, agricultural price supports cost consumers about $16 billion per year or $390 per household. And these price controls spur the market to produce more of this stuff than people actually value, diverting resources away from more highly valued uses. And while it may be tough to make out in this picture... It's actually a skier racing down a mountain of corn created by government price supports. Now, when producers want to sell more than consumers want to buy, one way uh, producers can do that is to engage in non-price competition. For four decades, the federal government regulated airline ticket prices, keeping them well above equilibrium prices. The airlines couldn't compete on price, so they competed on other dimensions of quality, like better meals and better-looking stewardesses. In case you're wondering where that cultural icon came from of the attractive stewardess, it, it came from price controls. Now, when Congress deregulated airlines, prices fell, more people could fly. Quality also fell, but that was because people were unwilling to pay for the uh, fancy meals and the empty seats that the airlines were using to lure them um, under the, uh, the price control regime. Now, economists... Traditional hostility toward price controls is bipartisan. This is a quote from a report that was put out uh, by the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Judge, uh, Justice under a Republican administration. It uh, states that uh, price controls harm consumers, are difficult and costly to administer, they reduce quality, and they often and they usually leave consumers worse off. And this, as we all know, is a, uh, the uh, chairman of the National Economic Council under our current Democratic president. He uh, wrote in uh, 1996 that price and exchange controls inevitably create harmful economic distortions. Once more, here we have a centrist new Democrat who in 1994 criticized uh, the Clinton Health Security Act for the price controls that it tried to uh, use to uh, manage resource allocation in the health sector. I think, uh, I think this, is a, this is a really key point that David Kendall makes, which is, yes, the government can control prices. It can set the prices at a certain level. 
but it can't change the underlying reasons why prices are so high. It can't change the reason, those, the price controls do nothing to alter those realities. And so what they really do is they just block the market from doing what markets do, which is encouraging producers and consumers to respond to those realities in socially constructive ways. So one notable type of price control that we have, that we use in the U.S. healthcare sector is administered prices. This is how Medicare pays for most of the stuff it buys. It pays for physician services, hospital admissions this way. Basically, the government comes up with the price, what it thinks the price for a given service should be, and that's what buyers and sellers, well, actually, that's what the price is. The, the buyer is usually uh, Medicare itself. Um, for physician services, Medicare has to come up with 7, 000, about 7,000 different prices uh, uh, in each of 89 different payment localities. That's about 623,000 prices that Medicare has to come up with. Medicaid, in the Medicaid program, it's the states that set these rates um, that, uh, that physicians are going to be paid under uh, uh, fee-for-service Medicaid. And one problem with these price controls is they always miss the mark. They're always either too high or too low. Occasionally, not shouldn't always. Occasionally, sure, they're probably replicating what the market would uh, what the market would come up with. But as the FTC and DOJ acknowledged, any administered pricing system inevitably has difficulty replicating what the what what the market would come up with, uh, and therefore, because prices are always going to be are, are usually going to be too high or too low. <laughs> Some of them are going to be too, uh, some services are going to be too lucrative, some unprofitable, and so some of them are going to be more available, and some of them are going to be less available. And unlike market prices, these prices are not self-correcting. The administered prices the government comes up with don't automatically respond to supply and demand, and uh, move the price in the direction that will equilibrate the two. They don't, uh, prices therefore don't track providers' costs. Instead of following market cues, they follow political cues, and usually the political <coughs> cue is stagnation. So what happens is uh, the Congress sets a formula for coming up uh, for what the prices are going to be, and the price just sort of stays there. despite what's happening to the underlying cost of providing those services. This is a quote from Paul Ginsburg, who's the head of the Center for Studying Health System Change. He notes that when Medicare sets the prices for cardiologist services, they set the prices and the prices just sort of stay there, but because there's been so many gains in productivity in the provision of cardiology services, the costs have fallen, and yet the prices haven't changed to catch up with that reality. So it creates this enormous incentive for cardiologists to go out and start their own hospitals so that they themselves can capture, capture the excessive payments involved, um, rather than letting larger hospitals do that. That's why you may have heard a lot of community hospitals complain about the unfair competition from specialty surgical hospitals, including uh, cardiology uh, hospitals. Prices for, for some services are set too high, well above cost, and so the doctors launch their own hospitals. And like the airlines, they can't really compete on price. Like the airlines back in, uh, before 1980, they can't really compete on price, so they compete with other amenities, convenience, personalized service, private rooms for patients, the re and the reason for the community hospital's complaints, which are somewhat valid, is not unfair competition, but price controls. Another example in, uh, that, that uh, Mike Tanner and I discuss in healthy competition is that despite the advances in productivity uh, and the reduced costs at ambulatory surgical centers, it, it took Medicare 16 years to readjust its uh, payments to ambulatory surgical centers to reflect those advances. 
in, in fact, price, the uh, administered prices that Medicare comes up with are, are highly resistant to change. Why? Well, because as I think I did, uh, touched on uh, 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 yesterday or the day before, the fact that these prices are set through the political process, and the political process moves very slowly, and our Constitution is designed to, uh, uh, to, to resist change, it gives incumbent providers who are doing well under the current price-setting regime, regime, it effectively gives them a veto so that they can block changes. Uh, Jeremy Rosner, who uh, uh, wrote for the Progressive Policy Institute back in 1992, I think it was, wrote that every provider who feels his rate inadequately reflects some local variation or who, every patient who suffers a waiting list for use of service and technology, every hospital forced to affect layoffs, they all converge on Congress uh, to, to get Congress to change the payment system in a way that favors them, especially if it's already favoring them. So that, uh, as the FTC and DOJ note, even straightforward purchasing initiatives like competitive bidding for durable medical equipment that were shown to reduce costs without reducing quality uh, meet significant resistance and are often blocked. And the DOJ, the FTC and DOJ wrote this back in 2004. And if you were paying attention, you probably noticed that last year this, this competitive bidding initiative for durable medical equipment uh, in Medicare was dealt a serious blow and a serious setback. Here's another example, uh, again from David Kendall, who writes that the highly paid, the, the, the producers who are highly paid under administrative pricing schemes uh, have a huge incentive to resist change, and they do. He gives the example of surgeons. Um, and the American College of Surgeons, which actually endorsed a single-payer approach because uh, uh, Kendall alleges that would uh, preserve their uh, excessive payments. By, by freezing in place the excessive payments uh, market-wide rather than just in Medicare. And this is another example of price controls leading to uh, overpayment, rigidity, and rent-seeking. Now, what about cost control? Administered prices are rarely accurate. They don't self-correct. Do they at least help control costs? Well, funny thing about administered prices, if what you want to do is control spending, administered prices are just one part of that equation. The other part is quantity. And it's easy to see how they might fall short of that, uh, of, of reducing, uh, of the goal of reducing spending. And that's uh, because even when the, uh, the, the political process gets around to reducing payments uh, for uh, services that, uh, that may, you know, try to, to try to get them to reflect producers' actual costs, the producers can then just ramp up their use uh, or, or, or the amount of services that they deliver. This is particularly the case when it comes to physicians. The CBO estimates that when you cut physician payments, you can, you would, just by doing the math, you would expect to, uh, say you would expect to save a uh, billion dollars. Because physicians have the ability to ramp up quantity, you actually uh, uh, lose about 25% of those savings. And that's, uh, and a lot of those additional services might be, uh, might not be providing much value, but the physicians are providing, are, are delivering them to preserve their incomes. And there are also a lot of other ways that, uh, that, that, that producers can, sub can subvert these price controls. Uh, 
one of them is there are software companies that will that help hospitals maximize their payments. Uh, the Cato Institute, we actually have a supporter who used to work for one of these software companies, develop this software that would help them figure out exactly how to bill Medicare for a given patient. What method of billing, what services should we provide, how should we, you know, should we, should we upcode, say that uh, we gave these, uh, these, uh, this, this patient, um, or this patient had a different diagnosis, should we unbundle these services and say we provided multiple distinct services because then the payments will be higher. Uh, this, uh, this, this, this Cato supporter actually uh, uh, quit that job after uh, a number of years because he was disgusted with the whole process and, and, and how this was really just an effort to, um, uh, to take advantage of Medicare's price controls. And much uh, or, or many of the uh, Medicare fraud investigations are basically a result of this. The government has instituted these administrative prices, uh, these, um, this administrative pricing scheme. Producers find ways to maximize their revenues, and some of them fall into a gray area of legality. And so, you know, and so those fraud investigations are just one of the costs of, of, of trying to enforce these price controls. Sometimes, uh, uh, but, or I should say, there's also a real danger that emerges when prices are set too low. This is a boy named Diamante Driver who in 2007 died at age 12, as the Washington Post put it, for want of a dentist. Uh, Diamante's mother, uh, the family was eligible for Medicaid. Uh, she had trouble finding a dentist who would accept Medicaid. Diamante had an infection uh, that uh, uh, he had an abscess tooth. There was an infection that spread to his brain. And uh, had he received just basic dental care, a, 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 a checkup and, ex, and an extraction, this never would have happened. As it was, when the infection spread to his brain, he was admitted to Children's Hospital. They ended up spending over a quarter of a million dollars on, uh, to, try to, uh, to try to save him, and it ultimately failed. This is uh, an example of what happens when the government sets the price too low. And the Medicaid, the Medicaid program is notorious for this, for paying providers so little that, uh, that people enrolled in Medicaid have difficulty finding a provider who will accept uh, Medicaid patients. Uh, the Maryland Medicaid program is typical. Only about 16% of dentists accept Medicaid. Only about 30% of kids actually who are enrolled in Medicaid actually get uh, dental services in a given year. And nationwide, uh, when, it, when uh, surveys of all provide, providers uh, have found that only that 30% of all providers are not accepting any new Medicaid patients, which imposes, uh, like, uh, like uh, waiting lists um, or, or rationing by waiting elsewhere, imposes costs on, uh, on, on patients. Obviously, it imposes costs on the, on the driver family, but also just the expense of trying to find a physician, the expense of driving hours and hours uh, to, find, uh, to get to a physician once you've been able to make an appointment. These are costs that, uh, that, are not, that don't show up in government budgets that are imposed by administrative pricing systems, even, um, even if spending is ultimately lower. But there's no guarantee that spending is going to be lower, as we saw in Diamante's case. So um, what about prescription drugs? Fortunately, in the United States, uh, pricing for prescription drugs is relatively uh, uh, less controlled than uh, in other countries, which is one of the reasons why uh, the U.S. leads the world in drug innovation. But we do have price controls imposed on prescription drugs in the Medicaid program. 
Fiona Scott Morton is an economist at Yale University who has uh, done a lot of research into the effects of uh, Medicaid's uh, reference pricing scheme uh, for controlling uh, drug prices. Basically, as she explains, what happens under reference pricing is the government pegs the price that it'll pay to some other indicator. This could be uh, some uh, macroeconomic indicator. It could be the amount that the drug companies charge private purchasers, which is what happens in Medicaid. And as she explains, what inevitably happens is once the government pegs its price to some other indicator, that indicator rises faster. So in the case of Medicaid, what happens uh, when Medicaid says that it will uh, only pay a percentage uh, it'll, uh, it'll pay the lowest price that, any, um, uh, that, that a drug manufacturer charges to any purchaser or it'll only pay the, a percentage of what the drug manufacturer charges to other purchasers. What happens is those other prices rise. And so uh, Fiona Scott Morton has estimated that prices for private purchasers have actually risen about 15% as a result of Medicaid's price controls, uh, which also suggests that uh, the price controls don't do a whole lot of, to constrain Medicaid spending. What about health insurance? This is the one area that I think that uh, almost all of the proposals that we've seen to reform health care uh, this year, or that we're likely to see this year, uh, where the one type of price control that, that they will all share in common. Uh, President or candidate Obama in the 2008 uh, presidential campaign uh, promised a health care system where even in, with in, uh, even private insurers would have to charge stable premiums that don't depend on how healthy you are. So private insurers would not be able to vary your, uh, your premiums according to your health status. Uh, again, Chairman Baucus uh, said much the same thing in his white paper on health insurance reform, no setting premiums according to preexisting conditions, and he would even limit the ability to set premiums based on an individual's age. So uh, these are called rating restrictions on, uh, and they're one type of price control, the most common type of price control that's imposed on health insurance. What they do is, as, as I mentioned, they restrict insurers' ability to set health insurance premiums according to, the, uh, to enrollees' risk or their, uh, put another way, their expected medical costs. And when governments require that insurers charge all enrollees the in, say, the same geographic area, the same premium, regardless of any risk factor, that's known as pure community rating. But if the government pro prohibits the use of just some but not all factors, such as pre-existing conditions or health status, age, or sex, then that's called modified community rating. Now, it's, uh, now this graph uh, is a rough approximation of the, the distribution of health risk or expected medical expenses that you'll find in any group. Say there's just five, let's suppose there are just five different types of people, and uh, this graph represents their the expected medical expenses of each of those groups. Now, in a competitive market, insurers are going to set premiums according to each individual's risk. So the premiums for each of those groups are going to be, they're going to top out pretty much at the top of each of those bars. Now, that creates an understandable sort of dissatisfaction. The folks all the way at the end, the sickest folks, are going to face extraordinarily high premiums, and, and a lot of people are not going to be able to afford those premiums. So what does community rating do? Well, community rating tells insurers you have to charge all enrollees in each of these groups the same amount for the same health plan, regardless of their expected medical expenses. So what happens? Well, insurers charge everyone uh, a premium uh, that corresponds to the average enrollee's risk, the average expected medical expenses across all of these groups. So let's assume that this line is that average premium. 
In effect, what's hap what happens is premiums for the healthy rise so that premiums for the sick can fall. The additional premiums paid by the healthy are going to subsidize the sick, which in effect makes uh, community rating a hidden tax on the healthy. Now what happens next? Well, the healthy people sense this, and they drop out to avoid that tax. Some of them drop out to avoid that tax. And when that happens, the average risk in the group, uh, in the group rises and insurers then have to increase the community-rated premium. That causes more healthy people to drop out, and the cycle repeats and premiums keep on rising. As if that weren't bad enough, consider the incentives that insurers face under a, a, under a community rating rule. Under community rating, where do their profits come from? If that's the premium that they're, that they're charging to everybody, and yet some groups expected medical costs are well below that and some groups expected medical costs are above that, their profits, their margins uh, are going to come from the healthiest segment of the population. Those folks are going to be gravy to them. But the sickest people are going to be a liability. Every sick person that they have is just going to cost them money. So this creates an enormous incentive for insurers to court this, the healthy and avoid the sick. Now, most of you here probably work for the federal government. You probably have health insurance through the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program. In the FEHBP, insurers have to charge all enrollees the same premium for the same plan regardless of health status. Now, that price control creates enormous incentives for insurers in the FEHBP to court the sick and avoid the healthy. I'm sorry, I had that backwards. To court the healthy and avoid the sick. Now, uh, how many of you ride the metro to work in the morning? Okay. And you've probably ridden the metro during the FEHBP's open season. When you get to sign up for health benefits at the end of the year for the next year. Who are the people that you see in these ads on the metro for, for these different health plans? Do you ever see sick people? Do you ever see someone hooked up to a dialysis machine? Do you ever see someone in a wheelchair? Do you ever see someone, um, uh, do, you, do you ever see really sick people? No, you see people like this. You see happy people. You see families, people out there having fun, being healthy. They're always smiling. They might be young, they might be old, but they're very healthy people. That's because in the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program, the price controls that are imposed on health insurance encourage insurers to court the healthy people and avoid sick people. So they market themselves to healthy people. You walk past these folks in the metro and you say, hey, yeah, they're like me. I want to be in that health plan. They make people like me happy. So if you're wondering why those ads appear and why, why they have the people in them that they do, it's because of price controls. Now, last year, the Washington Post reported that Aetna dropped its coverage of a 12-hour-a-day nur nursing care for people like 11-year-old Shelby Rogers, who is the young girl in the wheelchair in the, in, in, in the uh, background in that photo. Shelby Rogers has spinal muscular atrophy. The reason given by Aetna, an Aetna spokesman is that when you offer that type of expensive benefit, sick people flock to your plan and premiums go sky high. The price controls in the FEHBP make Shelby Rogers a liability for Aetna. And so anything that health plans can do, either obviously but preferably discreetly, to discourage people from uh, sick and costly people from signing up in their health plans, they will do. Aetna, the, uh, the Aetna spokesman said that uh, it was adverse selection that, that led to uh, them dropping this benefit, but then the Washington Post wrote, wrote, wrote an article about it, and it turned out that this, this, this change in their health 
benefits for, for uh, or the, in his one uh, type of coverage, got, well, it got them a lot of negative publicity. And so after that, uh, Aetna reinstated that benefit. But as the Washington Post wrote later, they may revoke it again next year. And the reason that they might revoke it again next year is because of that incentive, that perverse incentive that the price control creates. The price control and FEHBP will keep penalizing Aetna as long as they attract sick enrollees. There's also a fun uh, example of this sort of dynamic uh, that came from the Medicare Part D uh, program. Medicare uh, Part D pays plans uh, uh, generally based on uh, uh, Without regard to the individual enrollee's health status, there is some risk adjustment where they try to, I think, compensate for uh, w when, when the Part D plans get uh, sicker than expected uh, group of enrollees. But, but this, was, this was an interesting article that, that appeared in The Hill. Uh, it, it had to do with uh, Humana's Part D plan calling up their enrollees and saying, you know what? Sierra Health Services provides really good coverage for your illness. It was alleged by Sierra that what Humana did was they called up the sickest people in their plans and said, you know, you'd be better off with Sierra because the sickest people are, are in Humana's plan are a liability to them, but if they go to Sierra, they'll be Sierra's liability and Humana will benefit. And this happened despite, well, this, this is what, alleged, what is alleged to have happened. It is alleged to have happened despite the risk adjustment mechanisms in Part D. But, you know, even if, even if Sierra is uh, overstating the case, the incentives are still there. And policing this response to that price control is costly and, well, prob probably often ineffective. This brings me to, the net, to, to another effect of these, uh, of these sorts of price controls on health insurance. What happens when insurance companies face this, these incentives over a long period? What happens when, uh, when healthy people and sick people see these incentives and respond to them over long periods of time? What happens is the sick people try to go to the more comprehensive health plans because they cover more of the sick people's expenses. The healthy people notice that they are not using many health benefits, so they don't really need such comprehensive coverage. And so they go to the health plans that provide less comprehensive coverage, not just because they need less, but because those plans impose less of an implicit tax on the healthy in order to subsidize the sick. So you get this, this adverse selection process where the healthy go to the less comprehensive plans, the sick people go to the more comprehensive plans, and what happens to those more comprehensive plans? The premiums go up and up, and either the insurance companies jettison benefits that make those plans healthy so they get less comprehensive, or they just drop those plans entirely. Uh, David Cutler was, uh, it was, a, was an advisor to the Obama campaign. He's uh, an economist at Harvard University. He and... Um, a colleague of his whose name now escapes me, and uh, Thomas uh, Buchmuller, whose name I cannot pronounce, uh, looked at what happened in these sorts of environments at uh, the University of California, in the University of California health benefit system as well as Harvard University, where you had price controls where people could choose from among uh, 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 multiple plans. And what they found was that the most comprehensive plans in these exchanges, we might call them, fell prey to this adverse selection death spiral, as economists call it. The sickest people went to the most, most comprehensive plans. Those were 
those proved not sustainable over time, and so those plans had to be dropped. Now, what's interesting about this is, uh, if you were here for, our, for uh, my discussion of mandates yesterday, you heard me mention that what man one of the things that mandates do is they require government to come up with a minimum benefits package that minimum uh, that satisfies the mandate. Health insurance that you mu how much health ins insurance you must purchase in order to satisfy the mandate. So what that does is it the, that minimum benefits package ends up, especially if uh, Congress uses the definition that uh, uh, candidate Obama hinted at during the campaign, that minimum benefits package ends up eliminating some of the more affordable health insurance options on the market because those options don't satisfy the mandate. They don't provide enough coverage. What price controls do, what community rating does when imposed on health insurance, is it eliminates the most comprehensive health insurance plans on the market because of that adverse selection death spiral. So when you think about it, the combination of mandates and price controls imposed on health insurance, such as through an exchange that everyone's talking about, we want to create a national health insurance exchange, have the effect of elim eliminating the more affordable options on the market as well as eliminating the more comprehensive health insurance options on the market, narrowing the range of choices that consumers uh, will face um, to really just different variations essentially on, on the same health plan. Over time, you can, you can see that happening. Um, which is one of the reasons why I, I don't think there's really that much difference between creating a new public plan and mandating that people purchase health insurance and slapping price controls on health insurance. Uh, both, both ways, the government is deciding what you will purchase. Well, they're forcing you to participate in the market. They're deciding what you will purchase. They're setting the price, and there's really not going to be all that much choice involved. Wake up. Now, there are also, I mentioned, uh, different ways of, of, of setting up community rating. One is uh, you can allow insurers to adjust uh, premiums according to some risk factors but not others. Uh, this, is, uh, this shows what the premiums look like there. If you're allowed to uh, adjust for some but not all risk factors, then the premium isn't uniform, but it still doesn't correspond with the expected medical expenses of all of these groups. So you still get the same effect. It's maybe a little less drastic. But the healthy people still have an incentive to drop out and the, the premiums will rise over time. This is also what happens, uh, to, uh, uh, basically what happens when, uh, when Congress or some other government body tries to risk adjust uh, payments to private health insur insurers based on the health profile of the enrollees that they attract. That's where uh, you say the enrollees will pay all the pay the same premium. But if Aetna got too many sick people or more sick people than average, then the government will throw a little money Aetna's way in order to make up for, for that. The problem is the government doesn't do that perfectly. And by the way, it kills all of the incentives for uh, Aetna and the consumer to be prudent uh, con uh, uh, consumers of health or purchasers of health care. But because the government's never going to uh, get the risk adjustment just right, you're still going to have this effect where the plans uh, get not enough for some people and too much for, not enough for the sick and too much for the healthy, and uh, therefore have an incentive to avoid the sick and court the healthy. So there's this, there, that's the critique of price controls imposed on health insurance, but a lot of people will then say, well, wait a second, that's all right, that's all well and good. It creates perverse incentives, but what are you going to do if you're not going to have price controls on health insurance? Are you going to say uh, that insurers can just charge everyone whatever they want? What happens if you have completely unregulated premiums? Well, uh, Mark Pauly is an economist at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's looked at this. And uh, across a number of studies, he writes, we, we find that regulation modestly tempers the already small relationship of premium to risk so that 
So you impose community rating on health insurance premiums. You use price controls, and you get a small difference in the, in, in the relationship of premiums to risk, but not much. And the reason for that is that the market has already developed products that pool those risks, that, that temper that relationship between premium and risk. It's called uh, guaranteed issue, I'm sorry, guaranteed renewability. It was offered by three-fourths of insurers before it was ever mandated by Congress. And what it does is it says you buy insurance on day one, and then your premiums will go up uh, with the average premiums in the rest of the pool. So as some people in that pool get sicker and some uh, don't, the sick people don't pay premiums that reflect their, their actual medical expenses, their known uh, expected medical expenses at that point. They pay the average premium uh, for all those in the pool. And there you have healthy people uh, subsidizing sicker people over long periods of time. When you just uh, force, and that's without any regulation at all. Now, when you force insurers to charge everyone the same price, what happens is, yes, you will get some modest uh, reduction in the amount that sick people are charged, but you don't get any more pooling of healthy, or, or you don't get much more pooling of, uh, from healthy people to sick people. Uh, and the reason is that the healthy people uh, dive out of the market. Uh, he concludes that guaranteed renewability already accomplishes a large part of effective risk averaging, but, but without the regulatory burden, and so there's little left for regulation to change. In fact, I would argue, though, that and not only does... Computer's a little slow today. Not only does regulation make uh, not make the problem uh, any better, I would argue that it regulation uh, these these price controls make the problem much worse. As Professor John Cochran argues in a recent Cato study, these premium controls have actually suppressed innovative insurance products that would help sick people pay those higher premiums. In fact, and this isn't just uh, this isn't just pie in the sky theorizing from some guy up in an ivory tower somewhere, although that's where he is. While Professor Cochran was writing this paper, and it was in the editing process, we noticed that the the uh, New York Times wrote an article about United Health offering the very type of product that Professor Cochran was theorizing about. So. Uh, and that is in a, a badly hampered uh, or a seriously hampered, um, um, uh, heavily regulated environment like we have right now, where not only do many states impose community rating uh, on uh, health insurance premiums in the individual market, but essentially the employer-sponsored market is, uh, is subject to a very ham-handed type of price control. If you think about it, the combination of the tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance and the government's restrictions on uh, charging or prohibition on charging different workers different premiums for the same health plan effectively tries to control prices in the employer-sponsored market. It doesn't do a very good job because wages adjust to compensate for that so that sicker people end up paying or get it, getting less in wages, and in effect they pay higher premiums because they're paying an explicit premium and they're paying through uh, lower wages. But as, as badly uh, or as heavily regulated as our health insurance markets are, they're still trying to develop these products that Professor Cochran was talking about. Now, when we consider that government accounts for about 48% of health care spending and that much private spending takes place in exchanges that are subject to government price controls, we can see that more than half of our market for uh, health care and health insurance operates under price controls. 
And I would argue that that explains a lot. The prevalence of price controls in healthcare means that much like when the government controlled fares for the airline industry, we're eating a lot of fancy meals served by a lot of pretty stewardesses that aren't worth what we're paying for them. A lot more people could fly, particularly people who currently have uh, difficulty affording it, if we could lift the price controls that govern health care and let market prices convey the information to, that producers and consumers so desperately need to hear. If, on the other hand, an Obama plan or a Baucus plan or a Pelosi plan imposes price controls uh, on even more of the health care sector through a, a new public plan or price controls uh, or imposing federal price controls on health insurance, we're going to get higher costs throughout our health care sector. We're going to have higher health care spending. Quality is going to be high in some areas but inefficiently high because it's quality that people wouldn't be willing to pay for if they were spending their own money. And we're going to have lower quality in other areas where those price controls set the prices too low. And we're going to delay innovations, or we're going to, we're going to discourage innovations and delay the day when markets make healthcare better more, and more affordable, especially for the sick. So I went much longer than I had hoped to go, and I uh, thank you all for, for, for listening. I'm happy to take any questions that you've got.